What's up, everybody? You're listening to Salah's Corner with the one and only Salah Muhammad. I got into this weird, uh, like, debate on Instagram the other day, and it was about a topic. So the question was, the Pledge of Allegiance has under God in it, and the idea of our government is the separation of church and states. So should under God be removed from the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, I got into this huge debate with uh, people on this topic. Um, you know, I had my opinions on essentially, yes, it should be removed if we are going to be a government that truly operates on the idea of the separation of church and state. Uh, but also that, you know, pledging to the allegiance is kind of weird <laughs> and we should consider getting rid of that as a whole. But going back to that initial point of you know, what do we consider the separation of church and states? And is it really and truly separate? I, you know, I know a lot of political figures use uh, that argument that church and state should be separate, but at the same time rely on religiosity to show that they are better than their political opponents. They are rightful and should indeed hold this political power and that. You know, certain beliefs and ideas, you know, should be upheld to essentially oppress other people. So on today's episode, I am sitting with Naomi Washington Leapart. She is a adjunct professor out of Villanova University. She also is a faith work minister. Um, she is also queer and represents the LGBTQ community. And we had a conversation just about that and what it means to have quote-unquote religious freedom, how the government plays a role into that, and the decisions that have come along the way when it comes to this idea of what it means to be religious and righteous in America. So I've had a lot of people coming to me asking me where I find the time and the space to make all of these podcasts happen. Well, I have to thank the folks at Rec Philly. They provide me the space, the equipment, and the networking capacity to make this take off. And it's not just for other podcasts. Other creative individuals use this space as well. We're talking musicians, photographers, anyone that considers themselves a creative individual. So if that's you, head over to Rec Philly. Visit them on Instagram. And if you find yourself wanting a membership, tell them Salah sent you. How are you today? I'm doing well. I So just for, for all who are listening in, um, we crossed paths and all thanks to uh, Nicholas O'Rourke and mm -hmm. congratulations for him for making the ballot for mm -hmm. independent candidate for city council. But we had a really good conversation about some of the work that you do. So just let's tell us about that. So uh, one of my jobs is as faith work director at the National LGBTQ Task Force. Mm. And the task force is actually the country's oldest LGBTQ policy organization. Wow. It's 45 years old. And the organization, one of the things I like to tell people is that the organization was founded by a group of folks, one of whom was a former priest who mm. understood the importance of LGBTQ advocacy in faith communities. Right. Um, because much of the anti-LGBTQ sentiment is religious in nature. Right. And so the task force for a long time has valued doing faith work as part of its mission to change policy. Mm. 
Uh, and so I have been the faith work director for a little bit more than three years. Uh, and that means that I'm interested in talking to everyday people of faith, of all faith traditions, about what it means to create a world where LGBTQ people in particular can flourish. Mm. Uh, so that's everything from representing voices of faith on Capitol Hill. Uh, that means training congregations to be welcoming and inclusive to LGBTQ folks. Uh, that means preaching sermons that um, connect, for me in the Christian tradition, the gospel, good news, to LGBTQ rights. Um, that means speaking in public as a person who identifies as both black and woman and queer and amplifying the story and the story of being uh, living at the intersection of these identities. Uh, so it's really been a great opportunity for me to kind of sharpen my political chops, mm. um, uh, to learn about the legislation that directly impacts me and those I care about, and to, I think, be a public theologian, be a, a public faith leader who doesn't look like many public faith leaders and, and try to represent a different kind of faith narrative in the public square. You... I, I think back to, you know, my limited education on politics and government and, you know, through my upbringing and school and everything. And the common theme was, you know, separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that has never been true. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the same time, you know, I, I, I see almost that argument used as a, as a weapon to not weigh in on, on mm. religious matters mm -hmm. when it is about the persecution of, of a sect of people, yeah. particularly in your situation, the mm -hmm. LGBTQ community, mm -hmm. um, but also to like, you know, that you have to believe in something if you're going to be a... Uh, political official so like that contradiction there mm -hmm. is has always one fascinated me to those individuals who are using that idea of the separation of church and states to hold the the head down of people who are who are suffering yeah but then also to say that you you are not righteous and you're not worthy of even working in this government that's supposed to be for a separation of church and state mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if you don't have some type of, if basically if you're not a Christian, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah, I think that one of the most powerful ways I've been able to participate in this work is by um, standing firmly in my Christian identity and critiquing sort of Christian supremacy, mm -hmm. white Christian supremacy, that the presumption in this country is that the only way to be faithful is to be Christian. Right. And the only way to be Christian is to express faith through a kind of patriotic lens, right? The in God we trust mm -hmm. as a nation or God bless America and nobody else, right? And so I absolutely think that it's a myth, it's a lie that church and state have been separated. Yes. And I'm not interested in condemning faith uh, I think people should bring all of who they are to the political moment, whether it's to the ballot box or to elected office or whatever. And I think that there has to be a, a responsible use of faith, a responsible expression of faith, particularly for public figures. Uh, faith must do no harm first, right? Um, to draw on that kind of theme from the medical profession. So it's been my joy to be a person of faith who critiques um, religious systems that use the state as an instrument 
and to criti critique the state that anoints only some expressions of faith and not others. Right. To do no harm, right? At, at how do you, how does one reconcile that? You know, when, as a, as a government official, as a political figure, you know, if you support or represent a policy mm -hmm. that does harm, you know, for, per se, you know, how do you recognize that? How do you reconcile that as an individual who has a particular religious faith where you are, one, supporting a policy that actually does do harm, mm -hmm. but then at the same time, you know, your religion isn't necessarily supposed to intercede with the policy and mm -hmm. the, the government mm -hmm. side of that, like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that faith can't be an imposition. So, mm. so my faith can be deeply important to me. Mm. The thing, the conclusions I've drawn as a result of my faith upbringing, my faith commitments, my faith um, uh, teachings can be mine to shout from the top of the rooftops. Um, but they cannot be my positions, my conclusions, my judgments cannot be imposed on other people. Mm. And I think that, for me, is where the rubber meets the road. People saying, this is an expression of my faith to actually uh, pass laws that are imposing that faith onto other folks. So for example, I mean, one of the things we've been working on for the last two years is the, to roll back the increased passage of religious exemption laws. These are state-based laws that allow people to claim a religious exemption to get out of following non-discrimination laws that are on the books. Or in states that don't have non-discrimination laws to do whatever they want free from state intervention or impunity um, as it relates to the state. So for example, a registered nurse can say, it's against my religious belief, it's against my theological conclusions to uh, terminate a pregnancy under any circumstances. Mm. Even if it is what is medically advantageous for the person carrying the child, right. person carrying the pregnancy. And so can refuse in many states to participate in any procedure that ultimately results in termination of pregnancy. Um, That's insane, first of all. And so you've got <laughs> people going to the hospital, receiving substandard care or no care, being turned away. They have no idea why, first of all. There's no sign on the door that says people in this hospital preserve the right to refuse care based on religious conscience. Wait, so they don't even have to... Nobody disclose has the fact that that's right that's why there were or make it known to you that that's why your, your that's care right. is being refused that's right i think i tell the story all the time about tamisha means who's a black woman who lives in muskegon michigan my home state of michigan who was 18 weeks pregnant and began to experience distress and so she goes to her nearest hospital which is called mercy health partners hospital and the doctors quickly as quickly ascertain that her pregnancy is no longer viable. Hmm. But they don't tell Tamisha. Because what is medically sound to do is to medically terminate the pregnancy. Because the pregnancy is no longer viable, and the longer the pregnancy stays inside of Tamisha's body, the more at risk Tamisha becomes. They give her essentially strong ibuprofen and send her home. 
She comes back two more times because she doesn't get better. She gets worse. Third time she comes back, she now is miscarrying. That's she's, insane. She's hemorrhaging. They essentially let her miscarry, complete the miscarriage. Wow. Right. And so no, no, nobody said to her, we are a Catholic hospital and we abide by a certain set of ethical directives that have been handed down, not from like the American Medical Association or somebody, but from the Catholic Church. Right. That prohibits us from doing these and such a procedures, including termination of pregnancy. Wow. Nobody, there wasn't like a rogue doctor who was like, listen, sis, you might want to go to the XYZ hospital right. or listen. That's, that's insane. So, I mean, she's basically, they, they basically made her suffer. She suffered. She suffered Longer than she needed to because of them imposing their religious beliefs onto her and how she lives her life. Mixing their religious beliefs with best practices related to medical care. That's insane. Tamisha finds out later that this is the case and sues and loses Mm. because the courts say we can't intervene in religious matters because this is a private Catholic hospital. Wow. So that story isn't unique. Um, And I think many folks, particularly poor, vulnerable folks, who don't have options when they get sick, are receiving substandard care, and they they know they are, but they don't really have any recourse. They don't know why. And so um, we need to really, I think from a narrative perspective, do better about Mm. telling stories like Tamisha's, right? Yeah. Um, And then from a policy perspective, we can't let this, we can't abide this, right? I can only think of how many times I or other family members have gone to the hospital and you wonder, you know, what type of care or what type of diagnosis that I not receive based on that the individual belief of the people that work at this hospital or, Mm -hmm. or the individual person that's actually helping me, right. you know, the doctor or nurse that's right. actually in the room with me. I mean, we're already contending with discrimination by race, discrimination by gender, right. discrimination by class, and now we've got discrimination by faith. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. That's actually insane. Um, so, like, how, what's, what's, the, what's the recourse there? Like, how do you, how do you fight that? Mm-hmm. I think there's only so much can, that can be done on a political level, yeah. actually. I think... Because there are non-discrimination laws on the books in several states, and people simply claim an exemption so that they don't have to yeah. abide by the non-discrimination protection on the, on, the, on the books. I mean, one recourse is to pass the Equality Act, which would federally add sexual orientation, uh, gender identity to the list of protected classes mm-hmm. so that you could not be discriminated. It would be a federal lawsuit. Um, I, I think it's a it's a matter of um, shifting also our perceptions about what religious freedom is mm-hmm. and what it gives us the right to do and whether or not there's a hierarchy of rights. I mean, really what people are saying is my religious rights outweigh your civil rights, right. um, outweigh your right to health care, um, competent, complete health care. And so... Uh, I think that one of the things that conservatives have been successful at doing over the last several years is shifting the narrative around religious freedom mm. and and framing this as a way to protect Christians and only a particular kind of Christian from persecution. Right? White Christians. White Christians, <laughs> usually cisgender male Christians, mm-hmm. 
who are conservative in thought and in deed, um, who want to be protected from what they call persecution from the culture, not right. letting them be the Christians that they are. Right, because somehow you just living your life is stopping them from yes. living there. I mean, that to me is the theological question. Like, why is my faithfulness wrapped up in your life? My ability to be pious or faithful, I mean, and we could have a conversation about whether or not it's actually faithful, but according to them, it's a violation of my own devotion to serve you. Mm. What is that? Because um, as far as I knew, that faithfulness was a, a, a measure of individual grace, compassion, hospitality, mm. justice-seeking. It has nothing to do with what I'm doing over here, right? And who you think I am and whether or not that's sinful and whatever. Right. Yeah. I think of the, the case, I'm blanking on the specifics of it, but the... The, the wedding cake yes. case, mm-hmm. right? Yes. You know, from a, you know, we, we talked about the medical side. Let's just talk about the private business owner, right? Uh-huh. Um, correct me if I get this wrong, which I probably will. <laughs> uh, gentleman goes to get a cake uh, made for his wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a uh, man, he's uh, gay, and mm-hmm. he's marrying another man. Mm-hmm. And the business owner basically says, that is infringing on my religious belief, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to do this mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. This case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. It was... I'll, I'll let you yeah. clarify the, <laughs> the response, because I, I can't really make heads mm-hmm. or tails of, of their response it's, of it. it it's, it's convoluted in yes. many ways. Um, Dave and Charlie, the couple, came into the cake shop together, to the, to the bakery together with, I think it was Dave's mother, hmm. to buy this cake. And once Jack Phillips, the owner of the bakery, Masterpiece Cake Shop, understood that, oh, you two are the ones getting married, said, I'm not going to be able to make this cake, refuses to make the cake. Dave and Charlie then bring a claim to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which is... Pennsylvania has a human rights commission. Philadelphia has a human rights commission. So this is the body that decides whether or not non-discrimination laws have been violated. Right. Colorado has non-discrimination laws on the books. The commission decides that, yes, Jack Phillips discriminated against this couple. One of the commissioners says during the proceedings, we know that religion has been used to facilitate violence and wars and, I mean, just calling the role of religion as the catalyst for human suffering. suffering. In his, you know, diatribe about why this was wrong. Right. Jack appeals. He lost and, and appealed. And that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically made a non-decision. They said, well, we find fault with how the commission handled the case. So they didn't even have an opinion. They said that one commissioner who talked about connected the dots between religion and violence throughout human history was behaving in a way that was hostile toward religious people or religion and thus biased the proceedings. That's that's what they decided. So telling the truth about some This is of what the, I'm saying. So yeah. yeah. The reasons why we've gone to mm-hmm 
war and invaded countries and persecuted large mm-hmm. numbers of people mm-hmm. is inflammatory to my faith. Hostile. That's insane. That was what they, the word, it was hostile towards. And you have to be an ob- objective, you have to do some objective analysis of what has happened. And that was beyond the scope of objectivity, according to the Supreme Court. So, you know, many people are like, was this a win? Who was this a win for? I mean, basically, the Supreme Court could have put its foot down and said, discrimination in God's name is still discrimination, yada, yada. But they they chose to... Kick the ball. Kick it back to Colorado. Um, But And that case got a lot of press and media, whatever. It's not the only case that the Supreme Court is considering related to religious freedom. Um, and it certainly won't be the last case. Yeah. Um, you know, I think now that folk know the Supreme Court is hearing these kinds of things, folks are more apt to bring to bring lawsuits and say that their religious conscience has been violated. So even a pro- we were arguing if you're a public if you're a business owner who serves the public, you got to serve every member of the public. Right. You are not a Christian cake shop. You know, a private. You know. That's not what Jack Phillips is doing. Um, But Jack was trying to argue, my cake-making ability is a gift from God. (laughs) It is an expression of my religious belief. And that's an argument that that a lot of people, particularly conservatives and on the the right, like, hold. That, like, this ability that was granted upon me by the hand of God does not allow me to serve you... Mm -hmm if you are infringing on my quote-unquote religious beliefs. Right. But you're, you're in business. To, to actually serve those to same To serve people. the public. Right. Insane. So that's where we are. Um. I, um, you, you said something about the... the you know, Supreme Court, and they they said it was, you know, highlighting those those crimes, um, in the name of religion, was hostile. And I think of how, you know, in a related but unrelated way, they, you know, individuals will have the same argument when it comes to racism, mm. where if you call someone racist. Like you are the like you're the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Like is that is is that just is that like a tactic, you know, where that that the right or conservatives are used to when they are the ones in the wrong or you know when they're perceived to necessarily be in the mm-hmm. wrong and when you you're you're being quote unquote called out that the calling out is the wrong and mm-hmm. not the actual action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, d- I definitely think this is a tactic, and I think um, even more so, it's a it's a general sentiment that we should all be able to be cool-headed and objective in conversations about the very humanity of other people. Hmm. Um, so that in the face of, if we're thinking about Jim Crow, in the face of dogs and fire hoses, I should be rational. I should be nice mm. and polite, right? So it's a kind of um, uh, the use of the 
you know, kind of this use and weaponizing of notions of civility. Yeah. That then shut down um, any progress, any movement, any conversation. And it delegitimizes, right? The very real sense of rage, anger that is present in vulnerable communities, right? So it's like, I'm supposed to tell you nicely to take your foot off my neck and not make you feel bad at all about having put right, your foot in my right. neck intentionally. Right. Um, yeah, it's a policing of tone, a policing of, of speech, uh, policing of rage that then shuts down. Because, because smart people who deserve rights are nice. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're supposed to be at least. Yeah, and they're if you're genteel. Not nice, you know about it then maybe that's why you were right you know maybe that's why we were racist against you because you weren't nice about it right when you say it like that it's obviously a it's it's obviously insane <laughs> but it works yeah it works tremendously well yeah. you know the 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 call for civility in the instances of oppression mm-hmm. and it's like do you go into the middle of a battlefield and say, you know, after you've just shot the other, you know, your the, your opponent or, or the, the individuals you're you're fighting against and say, OK, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be nice now. Like, you can't shoot me back. You can't get mad at me back. Like, it's just a, such an insane stance that works time and time and time again that I don't, you know. How do you recommend addressing that? Mm-hmm. You know, on the one... The, Not the to first say you have to would, follow, the, well, follow the answers. I, the first thing I would say is people who are oppressed need to remember yeah. that that actually doesn't work. I think a lot of folks do fall for the okie doke, like we got to go in and be rational and be clear and don't get... Let's send our most level-headed folks in. And, you know, we've fallen for the myth that respectability... Is successful, hmm. and it only is successful in sort of emptying us of our <laughs> passion right. and our legitimate feelings of rage and despair and all of the things. And so that's what's top of mind for me. Like, what is the good news for folks who are oppressed, so that we can keep on demanding what we deserve hmm. as human beings? And then I think there is a way that I think. This is all nestled in a container related to religion, right? We've said, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Mm. We've said, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for the people who persecute you. I mean, this is Bible. Right. And so I think it's coded in a kind of thin layer of religiosity, right? That Jesus never shot nobody, <laughs> you know, or Jesus never picked up a bull a bullhorn, right? right? And so... It's on then people of faith and particularly Christian people of faith who have promoted this kind of narrative to roll back some of that and say that anger is part of, you know, the full range of human expression. Yeah. Um, And so stop making it profane. Right. There is holiness and anger. Let's point to the examples from the Bible. Since we're going to quote the Bible, Mm -hmm. let's point to examples of Jesus being fed up or Jesus you know, somebody clapping back at Jesus and Jesus having to say, mm-hmm. oh, you're right. You know, that's in there too, right? Or Jesus refusing to answer to the state 
when the state was falsely accusing Jesus of stuff right. Jesus hadn't done. And Jesus was like, I don't owe you no explanation, right? right? And so bringing forward those narratives so that it doesn't get coded in, you know, holiness to be passive, to be genteel, to be civil in the face of insanity. So taking that back from those who use the guise of religiosity Mm -hmm. as a weapon to those who they are oppressing. Yes. Yes. This is the way God would have it. I mean, if the world is organized... How it's organized. Right. And not, so, not we organized it this way right. to oppress you. Yes. Yeah. This yes. is just a natural law and order of things. Yes. In God's way. I have my extreme views on, like, I, I, you know, I, I, I have to do a better job of not saying that. Because I don't actually think it's an extreme view of the existence of conservatism and the experiment of conservatism and the Republican Party should end. You know, because the success of it means the oppression of other people, mm-hmm. in a sense. And it's finding the different tools, like you said, to start to dismantle the hierarchy that they've established. Because, you know, the majority of people today aren't conservative. You know, the majority of people today aren't, don't represent what the Republican Party mm-hmm. is and does. But they are successful with the argument and he's built this foundation over decades and decades of decades mm-hmm. of quote unquote civility of quote unquote you know religious freedom and rights and mm-hmm. and so there is light i guess at the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. in the sense of like you know the next generations coming mm-hmm. after us are not even close to conservatism mm-hmm. and 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 kind of the era that that we're in and has come before us but you know, I know a lot of people feel like it's na- it's worse now than it's ever been mm-hmm. before. Yeah, I think in addition to the, I think the wild success can also be contributed uh, attributed to a vigilance. Hmm. I think that progressives take for granted the extent to which no human beings left to our own devices are selfish and violent. Yeah, I mean, and that's a theological statement I'm making that. I'm not suggesting that we we are not good fundamentally, but what I'm saying is unchecked, (laughs) um, isolated, being outside of relationship and community, we are selfish and violent. Right. And so conservatives know one win is only one win. We can't rest on our laurel. We must always be working, always be strategizing, always be constructing the new playbook to preserve what we've done, our victories. And I think that, that progressive folks don't do that well. Yeah. We celebrate. And then I forget. mean, I'm not saying the celebration isn't important, but it means that we aren't vigilant. Yeah. We think we got it. Yeah. We secured, didn't we do that? Didn't we do, we had the Civil Rights Act. Didn't we do that? We said we couldn't discriminate. We got, we got that check, you know. And I, I really just think that human history has taught us that stuff just comes back around again. It goes by another name. It looks differently. It, it, it morphs. It evolves. But it's, it'll come back yeah. if we're not vigilant to protect what we've won, what we've secured. And so uh, I would hope that this last two years or whatever it's been, four years, um, has shown us that everything that we have built can be ripped down with the flick of a pen, yeah. right? Yeah. 
And so we need not think that we've arrived. And justice is not a destination. Justice is a way of living, a way of being. And so I think that we, we continue to find ourselves on the defensive because we forget that. We take for granted that that's true. I have one final question that I, um, I ask everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, what's your most favorite thing? in the world right now. Oh my goodness. Very random, but a way of kind of <laughs> recapping what we uh, what we do. Wow. Oh my goodness. <laughs> mm, can I say two things? Sure. <laughs> uh, okay. So the other thing I do part-time is teach theology and um, also Africana studies and peace and justice studies at Villanova yes. University. Done this since the spring of 2017. It is really the joy of my life. Mm. Um, my kind of vocational, professional life. Because I try to create classrooms where no question is off limits, where um, critique and doubt and suspicion are common, expected, even normal. Um, Where faithfulness is kind of a wrestling match as opposed to a gold star or whatever. Right. Um, and so I teach a class called Do Black Lives Matter to God, which really brings together all of my questions mm. and interests, mm. right? If God is good and if God is powerful and God is on the side of the oppressed, all of which have been said, what is going on? <laughs> right, right. Particularly What's the deal related with us? to black folks, yes. right? Yes, And we... <laughs> At the end of the semester, put God on trial. So we've, we've read all this material, and we had all these conversations, and we've done some writing, and we've done some. We turn the classroom into a courtroom. Mm. And there are folks who are arguing for the defense of God, folks for, who are arguing for the prosecution of God. We have witnesses who are all black folk. Uh, you know, the students kind of embody, you know, say, like Nat Turner, or say yes. Henrietta Lacks, or yes. say, you know, these people. And we put God on trial. And I've done this now three times. It's amazing to me how, first of all, hesitant people are to make God accountable for what has happened, particularly to black folk. So that's just it. People who believe in God and people who don't believe in God are like, wait a minute, this seems, are we supposed to be doing this? Like waiting on lightning to strike or whatever. And I love the discomfort that this creates for folks. And so it really makes me happy to create a space where for 14 weeks we can at least ask that hard question. And students have no idea at the end of the semester. I mean, they come in like, of course Black Lives Matter to God. And then at the end, people are like... Damn, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I want to yeah. say yeah, but you know, <laughs> then yeah. um, next semester I'm going to be teaching it at what's formerly Greater for now Phoenix, SEI Phoenix Prison. Mm. I'm teaching that course. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just delighted to know that I'm going to learn so much in this kind of theological reflection from folks who are living in incarceration. Who, I mean, that question, I just can't wait to teach this yeah, course. Yeah, that, that actually sounds exciting. It gives me so much joy yeah. to, to do that work. And then I think the second thing is probably um, this music making. I was telling you about mm-hmm. the fact that I'm a part of a choir called the Philadelphia Threshold Singers. Um, it's a choir that sings at the thresholds of, of life. So the most um, 
frequent threshold that we are present for is the threshold between life and death. So we sing for hospice patients who are dying. Sometimes their family members are there, so we sing for them as well. We just sing kind of soft, kind, comforting songs to send someone on. Um, So we sing things like, you can rest now. That's beautiful. Thank you for what you've given. Now is your time to rest. I mean... Can you imagine? Right. Um, and it's just a real joy. I've been in ministry for several years now and have been a pastor and, um, you know, working in politics. And, and this feels like the most, I don't want to say the most fulfilling ministry that I do, but it's certainly the most impactful in a short amount of time. Like yeah. we spend two hours at the hospice and I'm, I'm really clear about what matters. <laughs> um, so. I, um... We, a friend of mine, uh, Carlos, who hosts the podcast as well, we talked about he, you know, he does a lot of volunteer work. And we talked about that, you know, we're in the age of the instant gratification when it comes to mm-hmm. social media mm-hmm. and then that volunteering and, you know, doing the, those types of actions, that instant gratification is you can't really you can't match that. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a certain satisfaction that you obviously are providing for those uh, those people, those people that are in your hospice care, but also you know that does something for you that you may not necessarily realize going into it that is just very rewarding coming out of it so mm-hmm. that's beautiful mm-hmm. thank you uh naomi washington leapheart thank you um adjunct professor for villanova i'm trying to remember all of your titles <laughs> faith work director at the lgbtq task force thank you yeah. for sitting with me today this thank conversation you. was great this was great thank, thank you, you. Thank you again to Naomi for um, coming in and sitting with me on the podcast. This this idea of I can infringe upon someone else's civil rights because of my religious rights is kind of insane. Um, but it's an argument that conservatism and the right has held for a very, very long time. Um, and it really in, in infringes on our ability to have a robust conversation on what it means to act, to have actual separation of truth and state, what it means to have religious freedom and what it means to have uh, civil rights all at the same time. You know, um, we can't have these conversations about the three if we demonize those individuals in the midst of those conversations. So thank you again to Naomi for sitting with me on the podcast today. Um, If you have any questions, feel free to always email me at realtalk at salazcorner.com. Salaz Corner is recorded out of Rec Philly. It's a space for creative individuals. It's produced by producer extraordinaire Brie Wilson and features music from Prod by Delgado. For more of my work and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please visit me at salazcorner.com. Until next time, peace, y'all.